0: Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.
1: Over 25 years ago, on September 29th, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blundberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend.
2: Hello, and welcome to The Rest is History. And this is the third part of our series on the recent history of Russia. In the first two episodes, we looked at how the Soviet Union came to an end. And I wanted to open this section by reading a passage from a novel that came out in 1998, written by Robert Harris, uh, you know, the great thriller writer, called Archangel. Um, And it is set in the Russia, the early years of of Russia under under Yeltsin. Uh, And it describes a British historian, expert in Soviet history, and particularly Stalin. Uh, He's at a conference in Moscow. And while he's there, he meets with a a journalist called O'Brien. And they go out to a bar. O'Brien buys some drinks. And then he starts talking to um, uh, the, the British historian about how he sees things. Weimar Republic, that's how I see it like you see it. Six things the same, okay? One, you have a big country, proud country, lost its empire, really lost a war, but can't figure out how. Figures it must have been stabbed in the back. So there's a lot of resentment, right? Two, democracy in a country with no tradition of democracy. Russia doesn't know democracy from a fucking hole in the ground, frankly. People don't like it. Sick of all the arguing. They want a strong line, any line. Three, border trouble. Lots of your own ethnic nationals suddenly stuck in other countries, saying they're getting picked on. Four, anti-Semitism. You can buy SS marching songs on the street corners for Christ's sake. That leaves two. All right. And this is where the the British historian uh, finds it disconcerting, hearing his own views, crudely parroted. O'Brien continues, economic crash. And that's coming, don't you think? And the sixth,
0: isn't it obvious? Hitler. (laughs) So... God, that was 1998, Tom. That's wow, 1998. Incredible. <laughs> 1998. So uh,
2: Robert Howe is very smart man, uh, yeah. journalist before he became a, a thriller writer. Finger on the,
0: on always on the pulse. Um, do you think he gets that? I think. Um, looking back, I mean, it's such a hackneyed parallel, but it is the best parallel. Um, the Weimar Republic for what happens to Russia in the so 1990s. the Weimar Republic is Germany after the Germany First World after War, the First World War, before the coming to power of Hitler. I mean, the sort of the the, the difference, I suppose, is that. Um, yeah, you know, the Germans always knew that if they lost the First World War, I mean, there must have been part of something, even if they didn't want to admit it to themselves, they must have known that the consequence would be humiliation, would be privation of various kinds. Um, and of course, they've suffered, you know, uh, in colossal quantities of, of casualties. Very few people die in the, I mean, there are... There are massacres in Tbilisi or, or Uzbekistan or the shooting in Vilnius, uh, but very few people die in the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And for most ordinary, most ordinary Russians just think the name of the state has changed and and there's been various other political changes they don't really comprehend. Um, so it's even great an even greater shock. And in many ways, actually. What happens to Russia in the 1990s, which is the decade in which Vladimir Putin makes this extraordinary rise from utter obscurity to president of Russia, is even worse than what happened in Weimar Germany. Tom, um, just you know, hor- horrendous wars, uh, terrorism, political utter chaos, and an economic meltdown that is just mind-bogglingly bad. Um, so, yeah, I think Robert Harris is, was right. The, ni- the combination of the 1980s and the 1990s, that is the seedbed from which the kind of, if I can mix my metaphors, um, the poisonous kind of the toxic plants of today's Russia. The Venus flytrap of
1: yeah, Putin's from,
0: regime. From, from which they, they grew. And actually you don't understand, and you certainly won't understand, what ordinary Russians see in Vladimir Putin if you don't understand what happened in the 1990s when so when people you know people of our age sort of you know people in their 40s and 50s people who are now the dominant you know the the opinion formers and so on in, in Russian society they live through this and they remember it as a time of utter utter collapse
2: so dominic uh, robert harris wrote that novel in 1998 and 1998 was the year where the, the ruble completely collapsed, there was a, an utter economic meltdown in yeah. Russia that dwarfed
0: all the previous uh, economic meltdowns that they'd been kind of staggered. No, Tom, that's the thing. It didn't dwarf it. That's the, you would think it did because they defaulted on their loans and it was a devaluation. So you're right. If that had happened anywhere else, people would say, oh, my God, that must be seared into their collective memory. It's actually not as bad as what happened in 1992. Okay. So talk us through that. Talk us through what happens economically under Yeltsin. So Yeltsin comes into power. Um, we ended the last podcast with literally the flag going down at the Kremlin. Yeltsin comes in the next day. And what's his plan? He doesn't really have that much of a plan. I mean, the best th- – Well, because so he's he, a communist. He's been brought up as a communist. Well, he's, I mean, he may not be one anymore, but,
2: I mean, he's hasn't been to Harvard Business School. Or- no,
0: he hasn't. But he and his aides for the last couple of years have been kicking around a lot of rival plans um, at, without really fixing on one. There's been lots of sort of disputes among them. Um and, and while that's been happening, the economy has been getting worse and worse. So now there are colossal shortages in Russian shops. Now, a lot of people, when they give accounts of what went wrong with Russia, they sort of start in the early 1990s, in 1992, and they say, oh, it's all the fault of neoliberal economics uh, being advised by the IMF and the World Bank and Washington and stuff. Kind of 20-year-old American business graduates going over and privatizing airplanes and things. If you're going to defend these guys, you would say, they have to do something, because as it stands, you know they're going to run out of food. There's going to be nothing in the shops, all of this stuff. And, and, and the thing they think, they just say, well, there's a guy called Yegor Gaidar. He is the key figure in, in drafting this. He's 35 years old. He's the son of so many of these people are, of people from the elite, from the um, And he's been looking to the West, as they all have, for inspiration. And he basically says, what we just have to do is to utter shock therapy. We have to rush into a market economy, get rid of all the old controls. And, and the way we'll do that is by liberalizing prices because they had very, very strict price controls. So basically, you can charge whatever you like. The market will decide and that will ensure you know, supply and demand reasserts itself. and a a flow of goods, because producers will will produce goods and then flow into the shops. So in January 1992, to give you an example of how this works, the price of a loaf of bread or a pint of milk or whatever goes up by about 250%. And so nothing like this has been seen for 75 years. I mean, just imagine that, Tom. I mean, for ordinary Russians, for people who live on pensions or on fixed incomes, this is absolutely catastrophic. Um, But the Yeltsin team think this is the only way to kickstart this incredibly sclerotic top down economy and even in Yeltsin's own sort of entourage there are lots of people who are very anxious about this so one of the key figures is his vice president who's a former air force colonel called Alexander Rutskoy who is going to make an appearance a bit later in the story and he says uh, they are young boys in pink shorts and yellow boots and that sort of tells you that they're not you know they're they're brain boxes they're not macho they're not truly russian they're they they've been westernized all this kind of stuff that gives you a sense that even at this point there are these resentments festering yes. under the surface and is, is this
2: not a theme that putin then picks up the idea that real russians are masculine and ride around on bears bare-chested and all yeah. that kind of stuff toting guns and it's kind of girly men yeah who are, who, who know about free market economics and all that kind of stuff.
0: You've learned it all from books. He don't really know what it is to, to be authentic. Yeah, I think there's definitely a sense that authentic Russian men have been left high and dry by the uh, the changes. Because, for example, a lot of the people who you suddenly see in the early 1990s begging on the streets. I mean, the Moscow becomes full overnight of people begging. They're Afghan war veterans. They're people who've like lost a limb in Afghanistan, done their bit for the motherland. And now they've been thrown onto the scrap heap. Isn't it also um, that this shock
2: therapy has the effect of closing down the kind of the factories that have been plonked in, you know, all over the Soviet Union to churn stuff out. And essentially, often in, in in cities and towns across Russia, these are the only employers, but they're not just employers. They're also, in a sense, the kind of guarantors of, of social security. They They provide services. So in effect, it's a bit like the Reformation in, in <laughs> England—it's a kind of closing, you know, dissolution of the monasteries. That suddenly, this new regime has come in and has closed down everything that enabled the poor
0: to get by. Is that part of what's going on too? Well, I think there are definitely—I think that that raises two interesting issues, Tom. So one is there—there there was a generally, as with let's say the monasteries or, or any institution, there was a general meltdown of the institutions on which people depended and which kind of structured their lives. The Communist Party being the obvious one but as you say the sort of the settled world of the kind of the, the very stagnant world of the factories and so on and all the little youth organizations through the factory and all that sort of stuff a lot of that is gone as you say the other thing that the interesting about you mentioned the monasteries so what the the, the dissolution of the monasteries creates in 16th century england there are there are beneficiaries right there are mm-hmm. people who make a lot of money yes there are yeah and what you have in russia in the early 1990s as well as you have prices in a single year going up by 2,500% and you have all pensions collapsing and all of this sort of stuff. You also have a lot of people who become very rich very quickly. Because they introduce a voucher
2: system, don't they? That when they privatise all these factories and companies and so on,
0: that the idea is that everyone will have a stake. So the privatisation has two elements, both of which I find incredibly interesting. So they really want to rush forward with the privatisation because... It, uh Yeltsin and his team think we have to – they know there is a lot of opposition because, don't forget, he still has the old Russian you – know, the, the Russian parliament is still the old parliament elected before the end of the Soviet Union. So it has a lot of communists, a lot of nationalists and so on in it. They're not all Yeltsin supporters. He thinks and they think we have to create a class of capitalists. We have to move towards a capitalist sort of popular capitalism as Margaret Thatcher would have called it. And we're going to privatize all these industries, which are all state-owned. Now, there are two, one way of doing it is they'll give everybody a, a voucher for ten thousand rubles. I mean, of course, your rubles are much worth much less, mm. you know. Well, because it's already becoming a dollar economy. Yeah, by this point. Because so the you'll all get a flat voucher. same up. Far. You'll all get a voucher, but people who work in the factory or people who manage it um, have the right to to take up to twenty five percent can buy up to twenty five percent of the factory. So what basically happens is all the managers, the people who've been running the factories and people in organized crime and the ambitious and the entrepreneurial, they buy up 25% of the factory and they buy people's vouchers. People are desperate for money in, in this world. So people are selling their vouchers for cash. Yeah, And they basically pulled all the vouchers and they get hold of all these companies. And so this is the making of the oligarchs. Well, there's another element to the making of the oligarchs. There's a second element to this. So a few years later, we're jumping ahead slightly, so we'll then backtrack. So a few years later um yeltsin needs money for his 1996 re-election campaign that he thinks and a lot of people think he's going to lose and basically the same guy who ran the voucher scheme the privatization scheme is very in with the the entrepreneurs and so on he's a guy called anatoly chubais he basically goes to the these guys and he says we will give you shares in um in, in these big kind of corp- corporations that are being created you'll get shares if you give us loans and so these are the gas companies and so these are uh, things like so minerals you have for example and- the two, two the two famous examples are uh, a company called Yukos um, which is uh, worth about 5 billion dollars uh, and it's bought by a guy called Mikhail Khodorkovsky who becomes yeah. the richest man in Russia yeah. he he pays 300 million pounds for it so an absolute fraction of what it's worth and the and the even more famous example is a company called Sibneft, which is oil, gas from Siberia, and so on. It's worth about three billion pounds. Does this have a link to uh, a Chelsea Welsh Football, Football, Club. Football Club? Yeah, Chelsea Football Club, because it's bought by Boris Berezovsky and Roman Abramovich for a hundred million pounds each. So again, a complete fraction of what it is worth. And the rationale of the Eltsin, i mean, this obviously looks unbelievably corrupt. But the the defence—I mean, Abramovich has admitted that he paid. They paid millions and millions in bribes to sort of to get this the rationale for it is we just have to create capitalism you know one way or another we have to do everything in our power to to um make sure we win the next election i mean we'll get on to that actually because why does yeltsin think he's going to lose this election because I mean, you know when we talked about well, things last, going well last podcast he was very popular it's not just they're not going well tom i, I mean they're going cat- catastrophically <laughs> they're going laughably badly So by 1993, 94, authority has basically broken down. Um, The police, you know, bribery is everywhere. Um, There are kind of gunmen in in the markets. There are basically, yeah, there are people with guns on the streets. Um, There are beggars everywhere. Life expectancy for men has collapsed from almost 70 to almost 60. I mean, that is, in a country that was a superpower, that is mind-boggling, and is that um, in in part because of uh, increased alcoholism? Yeah, it's massive alcoholism crisis, but also people are suffering mental illness. They're in terrible depression. They're poor. They're on the streets. So the number of people in poverty in Russia in the nineteen, below the poverty line in the nineteen eighties, about about a third of the population lived below the poverty line. I've seen estimates that by the end of the nineteen or well, sort of mid nineteen nineties, about seventy eighty percent of the Russian population. Like, I mean, it's that.
2: so odd, isn't it, that that a, a state founded on Marx, on Marx's ideas, on the the idea of exploitative capitalists crushing the worker, should end up with what seems, all you know, a kind of nightmarish
0: parody of Marx's worst <laughs> imaginings of what capitalism is. Yeah. Well, I mean, lots of people would say it's just massive loot. It's a decade of utter looting. I mean, they, uh, lots of people now would say the oligarchs, Yeltsin, Yeltsin presided over a, a sort of free-for-all in which he allowed the oligarchs to loot the state in return for, for supporting him in power. And so Yeltsin is doing this because he's trying to fight off the communists. Yeah, oh, literally are, fight them off in uh, ninety literally- three. Yes. So he's got his parliament, Tom, that they're, they're trying to block him, that are horrified by what's happening to Russia. So within a year of the transition from Gorbachev. The Russian parliament, the two big figures in that are his vice president, Alexander Rutskoy, and the speaker of the parliament, who's a Chechen, actually, uh, an ethnic Chechen called Ruslan Kazbolatov. They basically say, what's going, you know, this isn't what we left the Soviet Union for. This is an absolute nightmare. They start, now Yeltsin, he does have this sort of, I said but in the previous podcast that he could be a bully. And he starts, he increasingly he's ruling by decree. He doesn't want to, yeah, the, the parliament uh, are blocking him, so he's ruling by presidential decree. Very Charles I. And basically, yeah, it is very – so Capel Loft, great mm. listeners to this podcast, probably thinks that was splendid behaviour. Um, so in the course of 1993, you have this long-running feud between Yeltsin and his own parliament, very Charles I. The parliament tried to impeach him at various points. and He just survives. Um, he says he's going to have a new constitution. They basically say we should have a referendum on Yeltsin himself, and it comes to a head at the in September ninety three. He dissolves Parliament, very Charles the first, and completely unconstitutionally, he he gives an address to the nation, and says they're a block, you know, they're backward, all this kind of stuff, and um, you know they've got to go. They the very next day impeach him and say he's out as president. Rutskoy, this Air Force Colonel, is is the new president now, uh, and they. It's a very complicated. I I can't quite understand whether there's a bit of them barricading themselves in the building and him also barricading them in the building one way or another, they're in the building <laughs> and there's loads of armed men in the building with them. And then his own troops outside. Um, Yeltsin gives a TV address. You know, I mean, you've seen Putin's rhetoric during U- the Ukraine crisis and, and, a- maybe one way, it seems so outlandish and extreme to us when he accuses the Ukrainians of being Nazis and drug addicts. But this kind of extreme rhetoric is very par for the course in Russia. So Yeltsin gives an an address where he says the parliament is full of bandits, mercenaries, communist revanchists, and fascist leaders. I mean, these are the people that he's been working with, by the way, for Mm -hmm. the last couple of years. Um, And he basically gets his army to storm the Russian parliament. So tanks, literally, I mean, anyone who's will remember this who lived through it tanks literally fire Mm -hmm. on blast holes in the russian parliament building okay let's take a quick break there we'll see you back in a second
1: over 25 years ago on september 29th 1998 we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college and so began felicity my name is juliette litman and i'm a felicity superfan Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blundberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices Hello, welcome back to the rest is history. So, Dominic, uh none of this is helping Yeltsin focus on the demands of the economy, I'm guessing. <laughs> no. I mean, he's he's essentially firefighting the whole time. Yeah. He is also becoming increasingly fond of
0: Yeah, vodka. he's a wreck. He's a wreck. So w- when
2: is the the famous thing where he um <laughs> he's he's meant to be meeting the uh the Taoiseach in Shannon yes, yes. in Ireland. Um yes. <laughs> and he arrives from uh, from America. So the teacher who's waiting there is it Albert Reynolds. Um,
0: it is Albert Reynolds. Tom, well remembered. Yeah. yeah um, thank you. And um, <laughs> you definitely didn't record a previous version where you said it was Bertie Ahern. <laughs> so yes, Yeltsin has become a bit of a wreck by this point. And, you know, understandably. So he conducts an. Or- he tries to conduct an orchestra in Berlin in 1994. <laughs> God, gets drunk. Yes. Uh, there's the story that um, when he goes to visit Bill Clinton at the White House. Uh, Clinton tells the story himself that one night Yeltsin sneaks out in, in his underpants and tries to get a pizza. And and the most famous example it's the Shannon Airport. Um, he's flying somewhere. He's going to fly to America, and he's going to stop at Shannon Airport, in, which is the first ever Western European base for Aeroflot, I think. And, and, and the teacher has come all the way back, especially to meet him. From Australia. Was on, a, was on a visit of his own to Australia and has come back specially and has organised a reception at a local castle and a military band and the the, the Russian plane circles Shannon Airport for over an hour before landing because something's wrong, and then they land, and bloke comes out the plane and says <laughs> he's been taken ill, he's not coming, you know. And Tye Yeltsin is unwell. Yeah, and Albert Reynolds is standing there for absolutely ages, kind of, you know, doesn't know what to do. Looking There's the whole watch. Yeah, everything is organised. Yeah. yeah, of course. And and these are things. These are funny to us, but Russia is obviously a proud country that only a few years before was a serious nuclear superpower that had aspirations to kind of lead the world and i think for a lot of ordinary russians and you know a lot of the, we're meant to be doing this about vladimir putin for somebody like putin who at this stage is in st petersburg working for the mayor of st petersburg scenes like this are utterly humiliating mm-hmm I mean, when he goes to America, you know, Clinton always. The, people are fond; they, they treat him like this sort of shambling drunken bear, and that's how we sort of think Nesbitt of is isn't it? Yeah, that's how we think of yeah. Boris Yeltsin. But of course, for, for Yeltsin was once a serious politician, and for ordinary Russians, this is absolutely so, awful. So, Dominic, nineteen ninety six, he become he gets reelected. In a crooked, rigged election, In a actually. crooked, rigged
2: election that kind of gives the green light to all the oligarchs that start buying their yachts and all that kind of football clubs and things.
0: Right. Now, they basically buy his re-election against the communist Gennady Zurganov. Yeah. What is Putin's role in this? So Putin at this point, well, here's an interesting thing, Tom. When Boris Yeltsin defeated his own parliament in 1993, he pushed through a new constitution that would give the president far greater executive power so it got rid of the old system after just a couple of years new system where the president appoints the prime minister he appoints kind of governors and stuff he basically you know pulls all the strings now and the man who write one of the key men who writes that constitution is a man called anatoly sobchak who is the mayor of saint petersburg as it has now become now years before anatoly sobchak had been a law professor at Leningrad State University. And do you know who one of his favourite students was? Would it by any chance be one of Vladimir Putin? It was. So now Vladimir Putin has hooked up with his old law professor. A lot of these people in 1990s Russia, including the oligarchs, they're they're people who sometimes had previous lives doing completely, you know, utterly different things. So Roman Abramovich had been a street trader and a mechanic. Anatoly Sobchak, the the mayor of St. Petersburg, had been a professor, and he hooks up with Putin. Putin is his vice vice mayor, and he's in charge of attracting foreign investments and stuff. But really, Putin is a fixer. Putin is the key man, who's the go between between organized crime, between um, foreign businesses. He's a tough guy. He's a t- he's a he's a, he's very loyal to Sobchak. He gets he's loyal to him all his life. He gets stuff done for him. And he does the dirty work. Is he still work. in
2: the KGB? Well, it's not the KGB. Well, anymore, but we the don't
0: know the FSB. Is, the FSB, FSB. Almost certainly kind of... Links. Yes, ish. So yep. he still has all these links. So that, so because this is going to become an issue, actually, with Putin's regime. A lot of the people in the KGB, what the, the FSB is it now is, are really feel that they've been shut out um, of, the, of the carve-up of Russian wealth in the 90s. And actually one of putin's kind of cards is that he's going to be their tool to get their hat this the securocrats hands on all the wealth and get it that back sounds familiar from, from some of the yeah from some <laughs> of the oligarchs um so anyway yes uh so that's what putin is doing um meanwhile there isn't the, there is another dimension to this sort of story because of course this is round about the point where nato starts to expand in the 1990s. So,
2: Dominic, just at this point, we I think we should just explain a little bit about NATO, shouldn't we? Just say okay. how what, you know what that was. So, yes, for people who don't really, I mean, because NATO's been massively in the news at the moment, so probably people have they have a sense, but they may not know
0: the precise details of how it came into being, what its organising principles are, that yeah. kind of thing. Okay, fair enough, Tom. So, so NATO was born in 1948 49. Um, it's a product of the Cold War. It's and the Labour uh, Party, right? Yeah, its founders basically, I suppose. Certainly in Britain, we would tell the stories that's it's found as the three men there, Clement Attlee, the British Prime Minister, his Foreign Secretary, Ernest Bevin, who's a trade unionist who is very, you know, he's he's definitely on the left, but he's, he's very fervently anti-communist, and the American president, Harry Truman. And so what it basically is, is Stalin, the Red Army are in Eastern Europe. There's this fear that they're about to export communism. They're toppling non-communist governments in Eastern Europe and basically installing Stalinist governments. Um, and it's a way of doing two things. One, it's a way of saying we will tie ourselves together in this mutual defense treaty. That if any of us is attacked by Stalin's Soviet Union, the others will defend. So that's kind of Britain, France, the Netherlands, and so on.
2: And that's important, isn't it? That it's a defensive treaty, yeah, not an aggressive it is. treaty.
0: It's not an aggressive. But the second element is it, it, it's about binding America into Europe. So yeah. America and Western Europe now are kind of indivisible. That they have a mutual defense. They're the expect an attack on one is an attack on all, and the other members of NATO will jump to the def- their defence. So that's why, for example, after September the 11th, the Americans, you know, there's this sort of expectation. NATO will defend the United States because they have been attacked, just as NATO would defend Luxembourg if Luxembourg were attacked. And NATO became the the the, the main sort of defence arm of the capitalist, democratic, free world during the Cold War. So, you know, when we grew up, we used to see these. I bet you can remember them too these sort of maps that would be drawn mm-hmm. NATO and the Warsaw Pact who's yeah. got the most you know the countries all shaded yeah. who's got the most tanks who's got the most missiles and when the cold war ended the west was determined you know NATO has been very important to to uh, our sense of kind of solidarity and so on um we're not going to scrap NATO because NATO it's still important to have a defense pact and it's still important to have a military alliance that kind of stands for our values um and and the great controversy hinges on the the fact that NATO expanded after the Cold War. So when the um Americans and the and the Soviet Union were discussing German reunification at the sort of 1990 91, I suppose 1990 really, 1989, 90, um, the Americans kind of verbally said to the Soviet Union, well of course, you know, one thing is we will, you know, we can have Germany reunified, but don't get in a massive fret about this. Um, because we don't really have any expectations that NATO will expand, we certainly don't have any plans to do that. And then, obviously, NATO did expand partly because of demand from the Eastern European countries themselves, as much as so it's as much sort of pull as push, I, I guess. And and the because the Soviet people in the Soviet Union like Putin, Putin born in nineteen fifty two, comes of age in the nineteen seventies. He's always thought of NATO as the kind of evil enemy. Yeah um and and it's still nato still has this kind of bogeyman yeah role in in uh russia to extent that we in the west probably don't really appreciate
2: but it's a kind of humiliation isn't it for the warsaw pact countries are now enrolled in in nato i mean it's kind of uh, if if you were in britain and scotland went independent and joined the warsaw pact well no but 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 an independent scotland then leased Faslane out to russia I yeah mean, it would
0: well, I suppose that would be yes. It would Ish. be.
2: I mean, I'm I'm kind of groping after a parallel, but, but yeah. it kind of would convey perhaps. I suppose
0: part of the trouble is you see that some of the countries that are most inflammatory to to Russia, so the Baltic states, for example, because but the Baltic partners. states are
2: later, aren't they? So they're yeah. So the first wave is mid 90s, and that's Poland
0: and it's the kind of Visegrad group as it's yes, called. So that's Poland, Hungary, Hungary, all that kind of. Um, all those but guys. of course, they are countries that want to join NATO because they have a because they're menaced. A, Yeah, because they feel because Hungary, nineteen fifty six, the Czechoslovakia, nineteen sixty eight, and the Baltic states were were
2: actually in were actually part of Russia, so they're even more uh, sorry the Soviet Union, so they were even more
0: nervous. But that's even more of a provocation, presumably. Well, Well, the Baltic states you see is a really complicated one because, as you say, the Baltic states were annexed by Stalin. They were independent countries in the interwar period. They were annexed by Stalin. They never ever accommodated to being in the Soviet Union, and Western governments also never really, you know, the, the, always paid lip service to the idea that they were still nominally independent. Um, but, so, so it's understandable that they would join, that they, they, they yearned they wanted that to, they'd to want join to NATO. Join. They yeah. craved joining NATO as pretense. But at the same time, what what made it incendiary, but also explains why they did it, is some of those countries have a third of their population or mm-hmm. so, a quarter to a third of their population Russian speakers.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So they were kind of anxious that we are, you know, we are harbouring the Sudeten Germans of the twenty first century mm-hmm. uh, within our borders. That this could be the, ca- the Casus Belli, and we need the reassurance. Of NATO, that's how they would see it. We absolutely need it's for the same reason that Finland and Sweden, right now, this week, yeah, right. the big debates are about whether Finland and Sweden will join NATO because they also crave the reassurance. But of course, the Russians say Finland and Sweden joining NATO would be an intolerable provocation. So um, it's it's understandable why they did it, and it's understandable why the Russians feel. Threatened and aggrieved by it, right? Okay,
2: so, so I'm sorry, I I distracted you from the flow of the narrative there, but I no, just...
0: no, no, it's an important it's an important subject, Tom. So let's get back to um to where we were. So Chechnya is in the Caucasus. It's it, the Chechen people were horrifically treated by Stalin, deported, and then they're allowed back by Khrushchev, but they've declared independence in 1991. And majority Muslim and Muslim exactly. At the end of 1994, there's been a sort of stalemate. Every other Federal subject of the Russian Federation, except Tatarstan on the on the Volga, um, has has signed a deal and agreed to stay in the Russian Federation. But the Chechens haven't, and in nineteen end of nineteen ninety four, Yeltsin basically sends in the troops to attack Grozny, the Chechen capital. And here you see a bit of a a, a bit of a chi- frankly a chilling foretaste of of what yeah. is to come, because the attack on Grozny. It's a debacle, by the way. Thousands of Russians are killed. Conscripts kind of thrown into this kind of fire because morale in the in the Russian army is terrible. You know, Drunkenness, sunk, morale, delapsed. bad equipment, that kind of conscripts and exactly all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But what happens to Grozny? I mean, Grozny is the most ravaged city since World War II. Since you know the bombing of Dresden and Hamburg, or the or the battle for Stalingrad, um, and the Chechen War is a war of unbelievably horrific atrocities on both sides. And the first Chechen War is a complete and utter catastrophe for the Russians. They lose thousands of men. The total death toll is probably about 120,000 people. And they don't even win. They end up being another stalemate. So that's another another
2: reason why Yeltsin should have lost. Um, but he wins in 96. So he does win
0: in 96, and yes. And he has this power to appoint his own prime minister. He does indeed. And who does he appoint? Well, he appoints everybody first, so he goes through loads of different people, um, and uh, and then you mentioned the financial crisis '98 when the ruble collapses, and so Yeltsin by this point—I mean, if you ever see pictures of him in the late 1990s, he's a great bloated kind of drunken figure. At the end of 1999 or the summer of 1999, the Russians are planning a second Chechen war. And uh, the, the Chechens give them a pretext in August because they launch a sort of incursion into the Russian um, Republic of Dagestan. The Islamic militants in Chechnya, and this is the pretext the Russians need. At the same time, there are a series of apartment bombings in September in Moscow, in across yeah. Russia. Actually, yeah. about three three hundred and thirty three hundred and fifty people are killed. Out of one of these apartments, the police actually catch FSB men planting the bombs, supposedly. I mean, that's the story. And they're told to hush it up. So ever since then, people have said, is this a false flag operation? The person who's just recently been running the FSB for a year is one Vladimir Putin, who has moved from St. Petersburg to Moscow and made himself indispensable to the Yeltsin regime. And it's at pretty much exactly this point in August, September 1999, that Yeltsin gets rid of his previous prime minister, a guy called Sergei Stepashin, And he appoints Vladimir Putin, who is completely obscure, who's just come from the security service, to be his new prime minister and to run the second war in Chechnya. And it's a war that takes nine months or so, fought with unbelievable ferocity again, and this time the Russians win. And in the middle of this war, on the 31st of December 1999, the last day of the millennium, Boris Yeltsin unexpectedly resigns and says, my prime minister, Will succeed me before an election in the spring. His prime minister, who's only been there a matter of months, being one Vladimir Putin. And the the what's basically happened is Putin has done a deal. Putin will protect Yeltsin, protect his family, um, the people around him who have benefited, uh, the people who and made no money. They no, will not be prosecuted for corruption or anything like that. He'll protect their wealth, and he will take the reins um, at the head of the Russian state. Right. Well, I think that's
2: enough for um, today's episode. We will see you tomorrow for the final episode of this series uh, to hear about Putin taking the reins at the very dawn of the millennium. Literally so. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean and I'm thrilled to say that this week Tom is a guest on my podcast Walking the Dog where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog Raymond and you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland and yes I'm afraid I did ask him this question Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount in fact there are days where I barely stop thinking about it my brain is occupied by the romans it's like gall if you want to hear more of my chat with tom give walking the dog a listen this week and while you're there you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of ricky gervais jack whitehall and jimmy carr what's that raymond yes the rest is history did do an episode
0: all about the greatest dogs in history no you weren't in it most spoilt dog in history maybe